Just a quick message before the episode gets underway. The Aurora Renewables Summit London is returning on the afternoon of Wednesday the 26th of June. Book your ticket now to hear from leading experts in the energy industry as they assess the opportunities and challenges within the UK and the wider European renewable sector. You will also benefit from unparalleled networking opportunities. We look forward to seeing you there. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm Dan Monzani, Managing Director for UK and Ireland at Aurora. Today on the podcast, we're digging into the revolution in retail energy markets, both in the UK and internationally, and both historically over the last 10 years or so, and the revolution to come over the next 10 years or so. My guest today is ideally placed to discuss this. She joined OVO, then a tiny startup in 2009, and went on to become their chief operating officer. In the decade she was with OVO, they went from a startup to the second biggest retail company in the UK, absorbing SSE's retail business on the way. Since 2019, she's been the Chief Operating Officer of Calusa, originally OVO's intelligent software platform, but now a standalone company serving retail energy companies in the UK, Spain, Australia, and elsewhere, supporting a number of innovative customer offers, including the world's largest vehicle-to-grid trial. My guest today is Mel Gander. Mel, welcome. Thank you, Dan, and uh, thank you for inviting me to, to spend some time with you today. Not at all. Let's start right at the beginning then. So you, you joined OVO really early on um, in an era when the UK market was dominated by six big retail energy suppliers, all vertically integrated with generation and sometimes networks. And if I remember rightly, covering 99% of accounts. So what was your motivation to do that when the odds look so stacked against new entrants? Well, um, as I said, it was, a, it was an interesting time with the market dominated by the big six, but smaller retailers were starting to emerge. So, for example, Ecotricity, Good Energy and First Utility had already entered the market and started to see traction. Also, customers were starting to realise that switching was possible. They were starting to see price comparison websites taking the friction out of comparing costs and supporting customers being able to, to switch. And also the market at the time meant operating as a small retail was more commercially viable. It was also before the wave of new entrants followed over, increasing the levels of, of competition in the market and taking prices to what some would say unsustainably low levels. But there definitely was room um, back in 2009 for a challenger to build a slightly different profile in the market based on offering customers better value, which isn't just lower, lowering prices or lower prices. It's providing a better experience around what is essentially a, a commodity product. Um, and interesting, my personal motivation, I'd say, who isn't excited about the opportunity to create something new and challenge the legacy approach? Obviously, it was proven right. So do you think it was cost then or service or something else that drove Ovo's growth in that first five or 10 years? I think the, for me, there's probably three key areas to um, touch on. One was around differentiation. So... At the time, trust in energy retailers was, was low and service levels were, were, were poor. And so OVO really um, set out to provide customers with a, with a higher level of, of service. And we won multiple awards um, for that in, um, in our early, early years. 
And we also innovated. So, for example, offering customers interest on their credit balances and also offering pay-as-you-go customers options to top up via an app rather than having to go to the, to the local shop. So it's definitely differentiation. There was also then um, pricing. So there's definitely room at the time to price competitively um, before the number of retailers in the market significantly expanded. And then also brand. I think Ovo was really seen as a, as a challenger brand to the big six during a time when there weren't many alternatives and there wasn't um, and levels of trust um, within within larger retailers were, were at an all-time low. Do, do you think you had a particular advantage almost as a, as a startup trying those newer things? I mean, I think it sounds pretty every day to have an app, doesn't it? But um, I guess 15 years ago, no one was doing it. So why do you think Ovo could move fast and the incumbents weren't able to, to, to copy quickly? I think it's probably a theme that we'll touch on today. And I think we'll be spending more time talking about the technology that enables rapid innovation. But I also think there's something about the the culture of an organisation as well, too. Ovo really wanted to, um, to forge ahead. Working as a smaller team and a smaller business change is, is far faster. And so actually we set up and emerged as an entrepreneurial-led business and that really meant that we operated and made change at, at pace. Whereas I think within some of the um, more legacy retailers within the market, there wasn't, uh, having been in the, the, the same um, industry for some time uh, where there have been limited amounts of change, I don't think there was necessarily the, um, the ingrained ability to be able to move as quickly um, as some of the smaller new entrants. Um, let's let's talk a bit more about that um, that technology advantage then, I guess. And you would have worked a lot on the platform as COO in uh, Ovo, but you moved across to be COO of Calusa when it was split out in 2019. I guess the best place to start for listeners who might be less familiar with the market, could you just describe what it is that the payment platforms do, and in particular what it is about Calusa that gave you a, a cost advantage over other other platforms that might serve across a, a variety of industries? Maybe let's start by um, touching what the, the Calusa platform is. Um, so we, the Calusa platform was originally um, developed as an internal solution for Ovo Energy. So back in 2014, when smart metering started to take off in the UK, it became quite quickly clear that a different type of solution would be needed to manage the scale and complexity of the data that smart metering would bring. Plus also starting to provide customers with the type of experience and propositions that can be offered by using that data. So we've searched the market for a solution that would be able to um, support the business in its next phase and um, and didn't find one that they thought would be able to manage the increasing amounts of data that we're seeing as so they decided to um, to build our own. So internally, we built a full meter to cash or billing solution. And we also coupled this with a flexibility platform that we originally acquired in, in 2017. So what that means is we have a full end-to-end -end solution to provide retailers with the, the systems needed to accelerate through the energy transition. In terms of how we're different to other platforms, we were built with the future in mind. I think if we look backwards, we've been in a world where we might receive two meter readings per year for a customer, where energy flows one way from generation through to the meter, and it's settled, energy settled against standard profiles. And I think if we look at where we are now and where we're going in the UK, we're moving to a world of half-hourly data. So that's both for, for billing and for settlement purposes. Energy is consumed, produced, and also exported at a household level. It's not just one way now. It's bi-directional. 
And increasingly, focus is not just on when energy is used, it's also how it's actually being used. So retailers no longer stop at the meter. They need to consider how energy is being used further into the, into the home. So all of this complexity needs solutions that have been specifically designed, architected, and engineered to not just manage the data, but also to optimize it, to maximize the value for retailers and end consumers. So Kaluza has been very much designed and built with the future in mind. We haven't taken a legacy solution and attempted to adapt it. I'm, re- I'm really interested in that business decision, actually, because um, I think when we had Greg Jackson, I mean, obviously one of your competitors on the um, on the podcast, he he talked about almost wanting to be a software or a technology company and then sort of looking at which industry to enter. It sounds actually like you went the other way and were in retail and not finding anything that worked. So that must be quite a cultural change to sort of suddenly become a, a software platform, as it were. How, can you talk through a bit how the how that did affect Ovo as a as, a, um, as an organisation, or was it already just a kind of already in the cultural DNA to try something new? We were already operating with um, internal engineering teams and product teams, so we we're already set up to be able to um, design and build software. Um, and so we um, then use that capability to then start building out the, the Kaluza platform. And, um, and yes, it was originally built with Ovo in mind, but quite quickly we realized that we'd have the ability to commercialize it and that what we built would be able to offer solutions to other retailers globally and in, um, in, in go through the energy transition. So we then designed Kaluza as an organization and a business that could provide services to Ovo, but to also to other organizations as well so effectively we built um from over we built a built Kaluza as a as a software software business yeah i guess it's not very different to our own story at aurora we've sort of started building software for our own to, to build the models that we wanted internally and then licensed them out um externally uh, interesting how quickly you came to that realization um, and it's actually a nice segue to the conversation i was going to have next about the sort of degree of change and consolidation that we've seen as people have moved across to new play- payment platforms. Um, I was trying to toss it up before the podcast. I think of the original big six, at least five have now um, moved on to new payment platforms that are not with the the, the, the sort of um, old providers. So over obviously acquired SSC and then moved them on to Kaluza, Eon acquired Empower, and both of them have moved on to Kraken, so have EDF. British Gas have moved um what what's driven that change is it just the normal cycle of cost advantage or is there something different this time i think of it across two time horizons so in the near term optimizing for cost reduction and then in the longer term look at how to increase gross margins through diversification so if we start with the near term first um cost reduction i think that all retailers in the, rec- in the uk have recently recognized it and need to be able to reduce their costs through through being more more efficient um so if i take an example within um within the ovo ovo business taking on ssc within the ssc systems it took 27 clicks for a um for an agent to um, process a refund for a customer on the Kaluza platform that takes four so it's an example of how, um, how efficiencies can be brought through simplifying agent experiences. And then if we also think about the customer experiences too, how we can make them simpler and smoother to allow customers to more effectively self-serve. So through really focusing on tooling, automation and effective experiences for both customers and for agents, we can lower the operational cost for a retailer. 
And it isn't just the cost of, um, from our operational perspective, it's also looking at the whole of the technology estate and the cost that that, um, that has. So there's definitely an opportunity to simplify a lot, to take a replatforming um, uh, replatforming is an opportunity to really simplify across a technology estate to bring down those costs, but also the cost of change. I think what we've seen um, across many of the uh, legacy platforms, they take longer to change and it's more expensive. There's additional support and services needed to manage that change. And because of the complexity across multiple types of platforms, it's slower. So definitely by reducing um, operational costs and also um, CapEx, we can reduce the, the cost for retailers. And then if I think about the longer term, it's really about diversification. So how um, retailers can offer customers additional products and services, whether that's EV related or, for example, heat pumps. And I think what's key here is having a technology solution that allows for rapid change as the market evolves, really being able to test and learn what propositions land effectively with customers and have the, the best outcomes looking at how to quickly off offer innovative tariff structures, for example, and supporting more effective customer experience to take out the complexity that customers will face and make sure that it doesn't increase with the changes that they're going to see in their energy needs going forward. So how can we make it simpler for a customer to understand the energy their EV is using versus their heat pump, for example? So really having the technology that can evolve quite quickly and it's quite rapid to change, we'll be able to support retailers then looking at how they can offer additional products and services. One of the things that um, people used to say, I mean, maybe we're going back a decade now when the, the, the challenges were starting to gain share was that you were picking up easy customers um, and that somehow it was harder to use the legacy systems, not because they were legacy systems, because they were more challenging customers. I mean, I guess, I guess the SSE integrations a good test case on that. Do, do you think these platforms have been resilient to that or have they had to sort of raise their game again with a, with a broader range of customers and um, legacy systems as the, to do the transfer across uh, when, you've, when you've done that with SSE? So there's definitely, I think, if I think about across the um, across the UK, there's complexity within the types of meter setups within within customers' homes, for example, where some meters are controlling the heating, for example. There's things like related M-pans. <laughs> so uh, um, meters have to be um, switched and managed in, in parallel. So there is complexity there. Um, I think there's a, there's a couple of um, areas to then, then touch on. One is what complexity can actually be removed? So I mean, looking at, um, for example, the, the SSE base, um, there were the, the, literally hundreds of tariffs that were being supported for customers. So how can those tariffs be simplified um, to ensure that the complexity isn't being moved across onto the new platform? But whether that complexity is inherent in within a, a metering setup within a customer's home, it's not always possible to switch that out. So how can we effectively manage that to ensure that um, the customer is supported and um, still receives the, the experience that they, they need, but also we're not adding complexity into, into, into the core system. So that's something that we have, um, have focused on and have um, supported all of the complex cohorts that, that, um, that have been within the SSE base, for example. Uh, I have another pet theory, which I think is a bit a, a bit provocative, but let me throw it at you anyway and see what you think about it, which is that, yes, you were making some headway um, uh, in perhaps during the 2010s and that new platforms offered a bit of a cost advantage, but it seemed to accelerate massively in the, in the last couple of years of the decade. And I'm not sure whether it's a complete coincidence that was when the price cap came in. Um, now, obviously, there's lots of failings with price caps, but um, do you think that was a 
a material factor in tipping some of the older companies over into deciding they, they needed to radically shave their costs and therefore re-platform rather than trying to run their own their own platforms slightly more efficiently? Yes, I, I, I think that cost reduction is, is, it has definitely been a, been a factor. So looking at how to operate more efficiently um, and how to, to utilize technology to, su- to support that. It definitely is a fact. I think, though, it's and it's not just within the UK. I think globally, there's um, retail has a beginning to recognise that the platforms that have supported them previously are not necessarily the platforms that are going to support them going forward. Their needs are going to be quite different, and their customers' needs are going to be quite different. And I think that is uh, as much driving the change as as just looking to reduce reduce costs. Okay, that's just a really good. Um time to talk about the international markets because I mean retail markets are often very bespoke so um, you've obviously successfully entered some of those other markets how straightforward is it to scale the um, platform you've got or or do you have to sort of redesign it quite significantly for, for new markets so we've we've taken an approach of making sure that the core of our platform is uh, almost market agnostic so it has the flexibility to be able to support the, the complexity that we see across across different markets. And then when there's something market specific, we look to take to manage that at the edges of the platform or within a ring fenced element of it. But I think although the markets are sometimes quite quite different, we actually do see a lot of similarities. So if I look at, for example, some of the market rules and regulations, take um, Australia. And we have um, recently localized and have um, have our platform live within with the Australian market. There's quite there's quite a lot of similarities in how the regulations are set up and applied because ultimately many markets are facing the same problems and are using fairly similar solutions um, for those. So, for example, we might have warm home discount within the UK support customers. There's similar types of concessions as they're called within the within the Australian market. Or, for example, back billing regulations that were previously introduced in the UK, there are similar regulations within the Australian market. So actually, we're finding that some of the same challenges are seen globally and some of the same approaches are being deployed to, um, to, to manage those. But actually, they are quite similar across the across the, var- the various markets. OK, very interesting. And of course, the, the big common theme that everyone's wrestling with at the moment is the transition to net zero. Um, there's been a lot of debate in the UK markets particularly, but I'm, I'm sure it's true internationally about whether the retail market is just fundamentally broken, or at least that it needs to be radically overhauled for a, a world of net zero smart homes, electric vehicles, and so on. Do, do you um, think the UK retail market needs to be radically different in 2030? And if so, what needs to change? So um, I think if we look forward to, to 2030, um, I think it's uh, it's interesting to think about what the market will look like then. So we're expecting between 8 and 11 million electric vehicles on the roads by, by 2030. Um, so that for the electricity system will represent at least 10 gigawatts, 10 gigawatts of additional daily load um, based on uh, the data that we have around EV plug-in and charging um, behaviours. I think if we then add on um, V to G, so the National Grid's future energy scenario's most optimistic scenario estimates that 20% of drivers will be participating in some form of vehicle-to-grid um, charging by 2035. So that could be up to 2 million 
uh, EVs by um, by 2030. So, and then let's add on um, the likelihood for around 2 million heat pumps by 2032. So um, there isn't just a need to change the system to accommodate all of the increasing demand. There's definitely value to be unlocked. So retailers are really going to need to play a pivotal role in unlocking that value for themselves, but also most importantly for their customers. So yes, that we will see um, the role of retailers starting to change, and the types and of services and um, propositions they offer to their customers needing to change to be able to unlock the value in the, the flexibility that we're going to see. Yeah, that's really interesting. What's the um, what's the what's the role of a smart software platform in this that you couldn't do on a current platform? What are the kind? Can you give us an example of some of the things that you're doing at the moment that? pointing the way to a net zero future. Let's take um, the OVO charge anytime example of how software is enabling the transition to manage charging, for example. So first of all, key is identifying which customers actually have electric electric vehicles to be able to offer them the, the new propositions. We find that a lot of customers that have electric vehicles aren't always aware that there are specific tariffs that they can sign up to that will provide them better value around their charging. So really key is understanding which customers have EVs. So using the smart meter data, applying algorithms to that, to be able to detect which to detect the presence of electric vehicles in customers' homes and then offering the customers um, propositions that are tailored to them. And so also in offering those propositions, what's key is being able to set up the tariffs to enable them. So flexibility within the software to be able to create and apply those tariffs. So some solutions take days, weeks, or even months to set up a new tariff within the Kalisa. We've reduced that to just hours. Then once customers have been identified, once they've signed up to a proposition, it's how they securely and simply connect their EV. So either directly to uh, with an integration with the electric vehicle or through um, an integration with their charge point. So customers need to um, have a seamless pairing experience to be able to then connect their EV to the platform that they'll be optimizing it. Then it's also providing customers with an app to allow them to set their preferences around the, how and when their vehicles charge. So it's what time they need their vehicle to be ready and to what state of charge. And also even set a minimum amount of charge they always want to have within their vehicles. So whether that's enough to drive an elderly, to an elderly relative's home or to the nearest hospital. Then um, comes the orchestration. So with Inclusive, we take the state of the charge of the vehicle. We take the customer's preferences and we also take the energy market prices and optimize when that vehicle is charging against all of those. So making sure that the customer's preferences are, are taken into account and that we're optimizing to release the value against the, the energy market prices. Then once we've carried out all of the optimization, we then need to process all of the data and the information to make sure that the benefits are reflected on the customer's bill. So understanding what energy is used for charging and when, and also how, and then equating this to a pound figure so that the customer is then receiving the benefits. And all of this has got to work efficiently and effectively. So a customer's effectively giving up control of when their electric vehicle charges. And I think we've known that range anxiety is a big barrier to EV adoption. So if a customer finds that in the morning they don't have the state of charge that they need, they will stop a retailer uh, from controlling their vehicle. And so the value of that flexibility is lost. So ensuring that the customer's needs are met is key to maintaining trust and, um, and maintaining access to that, that flexibility. 
So currently, Calusa Combined Sovo are delivering um, this proposition to nearly 4,000 OVO customers. So it's really the first um, type of use tariff, as we call it. So it isn't around when the customer is using energy. So a time of use tariff is a type of use tariff. So the customer pays a low flat rate of 10 pence per kilowatt hour for their EV charging, as long as it's being optimized. And then they then pay a standard rate, let's say 30 pence per kilowatt hour, for the energy used to power their home. So it's really a type of use. We identify what energy is used for charging their EV and separate that out from the energy that's used to, um, to power their home. And so that's unlocking for customers an average annual benefit of £350. And um, what's really interesting is that 97.5% of the charging is actually optimised by the platform. So customers really are trusting OVO as their energy retailer to determine when, when their, their vehicle charges. And that's a great moment, especially when we look forward to B2G, when it's not just looking at when we charge a customer's vehicle, it's actually looking at when energy is exported as well. So customers really are starting to see the benefits and retailers are starting to see the benefits of flexibility. That sounds like a very big number, actually. I mean, it's a fascinating proposition because I think people probably will be more familiar with that time of use bit. I mean, frankly, we've had Economy 7 forever at a really basic kind of level. But that sort of be actually being able to dig out of the numbers, this is an electric vehicle and we'll charge it at a different rate. And then to optimize that electric vehicle um generates quite a big number I mean, I'm, I'm surprised at it is does it require customers to be plugged in more than normal does it need do they need to be plugged in 12 hours a day or something or, or is it just carry on with your normal use and we'll optimize however however long you're you're plugged in for customers don't need to those machines change their behavior so they, they plug in their vehicle uh, as as per their usual behaviors and yes it will depend on what the size of their battery is and the, the ability for that to to charge and how quickly it will charge as to how long they will need to, to remain plugged in for. Um, but we're seeing that, that most customers' standard behavior is returning home early evening and then using their car again in the morning. And what's really key is that first part of the charging. So as we know, at the huge peak in demand occurs between at the 5 or 6 p.m. And that's normally when a lot of um, a lot of consumers get home. And so the uh, current um charging patterns without having that optimization that orchestration the vehicle will start charging immediately um and so then this is putting an increased pressure at those peak times so we've managed charging the customer still plugs in their vehicle they can leave it they don't need to think about when it's charging and then the platform can determine when best to charge that as we see that uh, see the peak demand drop off so there's still sufficient time then overnight to be able to charge the, the customer's vehicle if we yeah. were to, um, if a customer wanted to be at one hundred percent charge and the, there wasn't sufficient time to optimize, then we would immediately charge their charge their vehicle up to that up to that level. But for the majority of customers, with the behavior we're seeing, that there is definitely sufficient time to be able to make sure their vehicle is ready for them and to unlock the value of the flexibility during the, the charging period. Which, which sort of brings us to V to G, doesn't it? Vehicle to grids, um, and there's there's quite a lot of benefit you already identify with just the active management of when you you draw from the grids. But you've also been running a, a V2G trial. What what extra insights are you getting from actually being able to use that car, presumably when they plug in at five o'clock, to actively support the peak by um, by discharging into the system? Yes, so we're um, we, we have seen significant um, significant benefits. So we're actually able to reduce um, through smart charging, where we forecast that the the peak demand going forward could um, could be close to sixty gigawatts at, at its peak. Smart charging can reduce that by about six 
asking what's um, vehicle to X can actually then take that down by further further 14. So it can really significantly reduce um, the requirements in, in peak demand and then bring value to, um, to customers as well. So um, there's, there's several different scenarios that we've, um, that we've identified, whether a customer um, has, for example, solar within the home that can then increase more value or whether it's um, just a, a B2G customer. We see potential savings of up to um, just over £700 per year. Um, but what we're seeing also through some of our trials is customers really optimizing um, how and when they're um, when they're charging their, their their vehicles, when they're making it available to charge and to discharge and to maximize the benefits of the proposition. So we've even seen examples of, of customers not just paying for the, for the miles um, that they've used, so charging their EV, and um, they're also starting to um, to counterbalance some of the costs of their the energy within their home. So they are really maximizing the amount of energy that they're selling back to the grid. And it doesn't just cover their cost of their driving. It's actually starting to reduce the cost of their, their monthly energy bill as well. So, um, so it's really quite, quite impressive. And I think if we look at it all together, even by 2030, if there were 2 million vehicles that were being managed um, from a managed using vehicle um, to grid technology, this is equal to two gigawatts of flexible daily load that can help displace six average CCGT plants with renewable generation. So um, there is a lot of potential for, for V2G. There's also some barriers as well, which I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll come on to. <laughs> yeah, well, um, well, just before we go go there, I'm interested in um, this, this flexibility opportunity. We, we do a lot um, of work on flexibility and, and clearly domestic flexibility is going to grow i suppose the, the the challenge to put back to you is is it the retailer or indeed Calusa that are the best place to provide that flexibility or uh what about the ev manufacturers you know wh- why not run the flexibility from the car or the smart charger or the cable even in some cases we've seen some smart cables so um who's going to capture the value in this flexibility that is a good question and we're already seeing EV manufacturers or OEMs taking an increased interest in the energy space and starting to recognize the value of flexibility. So in the US, um, Ford has enabled V2H capabilities in the new F-150 model. Um, and we're also aware of other OEMs planning to add bi-directional charging capability in their, uh, the new EV models. Will OEMs fully enter the retail space? Outside of the UK, some have. I expect, though, many won't make the full leap and existing energy retailers will be the key conduit for offering flexibility services. But I think we will see commercial models emerge where the OEM looks to access some of the value. So I don't think retailers should assume all of the flexibility benefits will definitely flow their way. Really interesting. You, you, you tantalized a bit by saying there may be some barriers to this wonderful vision of 2030 that you've just set out. I mean, where are they coming from? Is it policy? Is it just the broader operating environments? What, what's going to help you and what's going to, going to slow this vision from being realized? When I look at the, the previous barriers that we've, um, that we've seen, initially it was the, the cost of the, the hardware. 
Um, and that's definitely, definitely coming down. And we're seeing um, significant reductions there. And also some of the capability actually being built into the vehicles rather than needing um, standalone units. So that we've definitely seen movement there. The other um, area has been around the OEMs um, and their involvement in smart charging and then also V2G as well. So exporting. There were initially um, concerns around the impact that it would have on battery health to the vehicles, but there's been sufficient studies since and a lot of evidence showing that actually as well as um, not degrading the battery health, but some um, studies actually show potentially an improvement in the, in the battery health. So OEMs are definitely now um, more likely to um, support bidirectional charging. So they're the barriers that we're starting to overcome. So when I think about um, what's left, um, we definitely need to see better incentives for residential flexibility in general. A megawatt of flexible, flexible load aggregated on residential level is not valued as highly as the megawatt from industrial site or grid, grid cell, cell batteries. So bidirectional chargers turn EVs into sizable batteries that can import and export when needed. But due to market structures, these actions aren't rewarded to the same extent. There's definitely some change that we need to see there. Um, there's also a, a fair amount of friction around connecting new export loads at the very edge of the grid. So having streamlined approval standards to allow B2G charger installations in customers' homes is, is really going to be key. Um, as part of a recent trial, we supported the development of these in the UK with local DNOs and really improved the visibility of, of locations where potential household export could reach six kilowatt six kilowatts. So, the, the level that's required for, for V2G. So we definitely need to um, definitely need to look at how we can make that process simpler or remove the friction from it so that the capacity can be connected uh, more easily and far faster. And the, uh, the smart meter rollout, I mean, is that, is that the key enabler at the moment or um, is, that, is that technology sort of really foundational and you need a lot more on, on top of it in addition? Smart meters enable a lot of the uh, the propositions that, um, that that we're seeing. So being able to accurately track when energy is being used um, is going to be key. And then also thinking about how um, tariffs can be can be applied to that. So definitely smart meters are key to enabling. But I think it, it it does go further than that. It's also looking at other connected hardware within the customer's home. So being able to connect to a customer's electric vehicle, for example, and connect to um, to their heat pump. I think it will be interesting to see how all of that connectivity and routes into the home start to um, start to converge as well to um, to make sure that everything is aligned within the, the home and that there's clear control mechanisms and that we're not seeing multiple routes with conflicting messages being provided. Right. Fascinating. It's been really, really interesting. Um, we often uh, throw at our guests at the end of one of these podcasts a couple of quick fire questions. So sorry, I'm going to talk to you a little bit longer. <laughs> um, and I, I thought it'd be interesting because there's so much to do in this space that actually sometimes the question is, actually, with limited resources, where would you choose to put the marginal bit of effort? So I'm going to ask you sort of three questions from different perspectives. And I'd just be interested in your quick take on where you would put the marginal effort if you were in charge of that particular, that particular institution. So if you were the government, would you put the extra effort into retail market design or into power market design? Um, power market design. And that's because of those smart signals you said were missing or, or something else? I think it's looking at the whole system and where some of the collective barriers are. I think sometimes we do look through individual lenses without looking necessarily at some of the 
collective and where some of those friction points are shared. Right. No, that's really interesting. Okay. Um, how about if you were running a retail company, which of course you sort of have, um, would you invest the marginal effort in designing new services for your customers or driving down cost? I think as a technology business that's supporting both reducing costs and offering new services in parallel, I'm not sure that there necessarily has to be a trade-off. No. So I <laughs> that might be a, an answer of, uh, of me, me sitting on the fence, but I, I don't think there necessarily has to be has to be a trade-off. I think what allows and the technology that allows new services to be offered to customers can actually help with with cost reduction. So I don't see that there necessarily has to be has to be trade-off. And I also think it's sometimes um, uh, that it'd be more optimal to think about those questions together. So how to achieve both in parallel because i think there's that where the, that's where the larger opportunities are rather than looking at them as um as two separate problems brilliant so you'd be the most demanding ceo ever and you'd ask the both <laughs> both outcomes. right final final one if you were running a network company who wanted to make sure you could connect all this extra load would you focus on digitalization so digital twins local flexibility platforms or would you simply focus on more networks and more substations, um, more kit? So digitalization or more kit, more hard kit? Digitalization, definitely. I think that um, through some of the trials that Calusa has carried out, through looking at the uptake of even um, V1G, so just single direction charging, I think we're really proving that actually some of the, uh, the, the technology is there to be able to shift demand and move when, um, move when the peaks are arising. So I think it really is then looking at digitalization and really being able to understand and play through those, those future scenarios and make sure that there's, um, there's a, a clear plan for enabling um, and unlocking, unlocking that value because we have a, have a belief that it, it doesn't, necessarily mean that we need additional um, infrastructure that actually there is the potential of the technology within the home to start solving some of the challenges that we see that's great look thanks for that and thanks for being good sport on those last few questions <laughs> um it's been really fascinating uh thanks so much for sharing both your personal experience and your views on where we're going with retail and flexibility uh, right down to the, the household um uh, a big thank you uh, thanks mel well, thank you very much, Dan, for, uh, for taking the time to, to speak with me today. I've, uh, I've really enjoyed our conversation. That was Dan Monzani, Aurora's Managing Director for UK and Ireland, talking to Mel Gander, Chief Operating Officer at Calusa. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.